Hey, podcast listener. If this is your first time here, welcome to the Eat Half Walk Double podcast, coming to you from the Ascend Endurance Coaching Studios here in bucolic Stratford, New Hampshire, US of A. I'm your host, Chris Dunn. If you've listened to the show before, well, welcome back. So this show chronicles my four decades in endurance sports as a coach, race director, and athlete, told through the stories of the important, influential, and interesting people I've met along the way. While I catch up with friends, colleagues, rivals, clients, and the occasional family member, it's my hope you'll learn a little something about health, fitness, and the secrets to living well along the way. Arlen Chaffee is my guest this week. Our man, as he's called, is the unofficial grand poobah of all things gravel cycling here in New Hampshire. Heck, he practically invented the sport. Not only is he an enthusiastic and gracious ambassador of the sport, and if ever presented with the chance, don't pass up a group ride with him, he's also the race director of some of the friendliest and most beloved gravel rides in New Hampshire and Vermont. But as most things go, he didn't start his journey in endurance sports as a cyclist. He tells that funny and fascinating story as a segue to both gravel riding and semi-retirement. Well, here he is, Arlen Chaffee. Our man, welcome to the show. Hey, Chris. Great to see you. It's great to see you, too. It's been a long time. Uh, how are you? How have you been doing? I've been doing pretty well. Uh, as, as we talked in the four chat, uh, you know, I relocated from Newmarket, Seacoast, New Hampshire, after living there 30 years and uh, raising my kids there, uh, and moved to Warner, New Hampshire, a quaint little town, uh, cosseted by the dulcet tones of Route 89, uh, Jake Brakes <laughs> included. Um, but it's actually a really cool town. Uh, you know it from uh, having ridden the Kearsarge Hill Climb. Uh, and as, as we discussed, it gets me closer to my place in Vermont and my grandkids, all good stuff. And I'm semi-retired. So what's not to like? Uh, there's, uh, there's a lot of really good uh, stuff right there for sure. Um, yeah, I've spent, I've spent a little bit of time uh, in, the, in the Warner area. Um, some choice gravel there. Oh, there's excellent gravel. And uh, if you're so inclined, pun intended, lots of uh, vertical. Uh, I've got one 25 mile road ride uh, route that I that I call my popcorn because it's the only freaking ride I can do where, you know, I'm, I'm sub epic, you know, where uh, you can do 10 miles with under 10,000 feet of climbing. I come back, you know, 25 miles and 800 feet, and I'm feeling like, oh, that was that was popcorn. I I could do that every day. Well, you you uh, you you've gotten together uh, a handful of times with me here in Stratford, and uh, I like to say there's there are no easy rides in Stratford, right? There's no active recovery days in Stratford. You're always climbing. Warner sounds a little bit like that too. Yeah, the Shire, the Shire and Warner, they have uh, a lot in common, my friend. <laughs> I've got, to, I've got to get up there and uh, and join you soon. Um, you know, we, we 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 sort of opened this conversation talking about uh, talking about bike riding and gravel riding, um, and I, you know, I think I think for for most of us in the endurance space here. Uh, or currently, whether as race directors or uh, or endurance enthusiasts, um, you know, you are and I, you know, 
humbly, I, I think you you probably retracted this a little bit, um, but I consider you the the guru of gravel here. Um, it, go go right ahead and say it, Chris. I'm the grandfather of gravel. <laughs> you are the grand poobah of, of gravel. Your um, listeners your listeners can't see it, but I am uh, I am eminence grease and uh, with gray, with gray hair abounding. So, uh, but uh, I appreciate but, it. I'm flattered. But, well, I, I'll, I certainly will be sharing some some photos um, of your grandeur um, uh, associated with the release of, of this episode. Um, but 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 certainly you are uh, you are the go to guy in terms of gravel here in New Hampshire and then and I think broad uh, more broadly uh, throughout throughout New England um, with um, with some of the things that you're involved with uh, in both New Hampshire and Vermont. But um, I, I think I think there are some some newer folks to this space that might not know that you kind of got your start, so to speak, in the endurance racing world or endurance community here in New Hampshire, not in cycling, but in running. Um, tell yeah, tell the listener that story. Oh, so true. You know, I, I, I was once a runner. Isn't that a book? Uh, <laughs> yeah, it is. Or the loneliness of the uh, mid-pack runner. Uh, in my in my mind, uh, yes, I I was a um, a runner. Let me back up just a little bit. I have what what would be described as an addictive personality. So when I latch on to something, it's you know you know I'm full bore. So uh, I was on the pro tour uh, drinking uh, in my youth. Uh, I I retired. I hung them up at the the top of my game uh, happily. That was in 1989. And I'd say early 90s, uh, when we moved to Newmarket, we had an across the street neighbor who was quite an accomplished runner, Jay Jenkins. Uh, he's a legend. Um, and he said, hey, you should try running sometime. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and my wife, Peg, was running a bit. And finally, I was like, you know what? I got to do something to, uh, to keep the uh, cardio up. So I started, I started running. Uh, and I, I ran with her the first time and came back and I was like, that was fun. And she said, you're going to run a marathon. And she's smart like anything. Um, and so ultimately, by the mid 90s, I was up to marathon distance after I beat my legs to a pulp. Um, so I got into running in a big way. So, you know, 5Ks, 10Ks, half marathons, I loved because it's a, a perfect distance. Two days later, you're back to normal. Uh, you're running again. Um, but marathons, you know, you, those kind of get stuck in your craw a little bit too, and you want to pick some off. I was never particularly fast, uh, but I, I definitely enjoyed the endorphonic uh, results and the community, you know, once you start running. Uh, and it's not anathema to find uh, recovering addicts in the running space because it's a great way to displace uh, what am I going to do with all the time uh, kind of thing. But there's also some quote unquote normal people in the mix too. Uh, so, and we try to corrupt them as we can. Uh, but anyway, I got into running in a big way. And uh, during that time, I actually uh, made friends with another endurance athlete, uh, Mike St. Laurent who was a neighbor. He lived in Newmarket and he stands, I don't know, five, four, you tell me, probably shorter now, <laughs> stubby little legs. We laugh 
he's done a 235 Boston, you know, and crunch the numbers, but that, that's freaking fast. I mean, uh, and he worked for uh, Nike, Saucony, uh, New Balance, but at the uh, Nike, he was in their experimental lab over in Exeter, and he got uh, palsy with, I don't know, maybe you've heard of these names, uh, you know, from the past, but Joan Benoit, you know, uh, Boston Billy, and uh, Michael Chadwick, and the list goes on for these legends that would clock 120 130 miles a week and this is you know pre-hammer gel my friends <laughs> you know they they might they might take a sip of water if if they found a stream nearby it's like how the heck do they do it it's like then the, then the sports media got in their heads and it's like oh yeah you gotta hydrate you gotta do this and you gotta do that and it's all true uh and the times reflect that but i mean those were you know the days of 5Ks that cost, you know, two bucks to enter, time, you know, you got a popsicle stick at the uh, check-in at the end, hand-timed, you got oranges and, and water. Yeah. You know. Yeah. And you're you're talking like, you're talking mid-late 70s, early 80s. Correct. Correct. By, by, the, uh, by the early 80s, um, you know, larger events, I mean, Boston's been there, Chicago's been there, but by the mid-80s, I'd say, uh, and Mike would be a, a much better historian than I, because uh, he's been running since '68, uh, um, and he's still running. The son of a gun. Um, but anyway, uh, you know the, the popularity and the distance uh, craze between Boston Billy uh, and you know uh, Jim Fix. Uh, you know, wrote his book before he keeled over, um, and. You know, it the run. It was a running boom, without a doubt. Um, and I forget what the stats are, but there's a significant uh, percentage. I'm going to say ten or twelve percent of adults identify as you know running. They're a runner. Um, so uh, you know that's that's how I I kind of got into it. Early '90s, it was already in full bloom. Uh, the entry fees were still you know. 15 to 20 dollars uh paper applications um this was in the day, day you know predating um all the online platforms and so i remember <laughs> <laughs> so but i logged some honest miles you know uh, i would say at my peak i was running 50 or 60 miles a week when i was marathon training uh, and it's you know you got to plan around that especially if you got young kids as i did at the time and a job I, at, during most of that period, I was working in Boston, actually commuting from Newmarket to Boston. So there goes three hours a day. So I was getting up at 430 to, to run or I would run down in Boston along the towels um, to get my training in. But that's when I ran the bulk of my marathons was during that uh, Boston commuter phase. So we we make uh, the sacrifice. And that's a, a point that uh, you probably make with uh, your your clients and 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 followers is that you know you got to do the work uh, if you want the results uh, and you got to do the work if you want the results but if you do the work you're going to get the results kind of thing so I watched my times plummet I was uh, you know solid middle of the packer uh, as I mentioned which you know I claimed gave me a uh, a unique 
insight into the psyche of the, uh, you know, the, I call it the pig and the python, where most of us live in the, you know, 7.30 to 8.30 per mile pace. There's a lot of people that are in that range. So, um, you know, poor Mike and Linda, uh, Mike's wife, who also co-founded uh, Loco with us, um, you know, they're off the front. I mean, they've got no idea. It's like I had to fill them in. It's like, no, no, no. This is this is what it's really like in the trenches. <laughs> so, um, but, you know, I got to respectable times, whatever a sub 20 is and a 5K, what's that, low sixes? Yes. Um, I mean, I used to train everywhere at seven tens until I didn't. Um, you know, so I would do uh, half marathons at a 715. I think my best marathon I'm rattling off numbers here, but like three mid three twenties. So you know, respectable, but you know, not setting the world on fire. I wasn't. Uh, I didn't have any sponsors. Uh, <laughs> but you enjoyed. But you enjoyed it. You en absolutely you enjoyed, enjoyed this. You enjoyed the pursuit, the chase, right? Of correct. Of, of working to improve. Regardless of regardless of how you stacked up against other people, although I'm sure to your point, you know, at, at some point um, you end up seeing the same people at events. You oh, end up, yeah. Oh, you end yeah. Up in and around the same people. And then whether they realize it or not, they are in competition with you and you are in competition with them. Right. So there's that pursuit, too. My yeah, and my favorite is you know you're 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 toeing the line and you see I'm trying to remember the guy's name but we were always within seconds of each other, and you toe in the line and say hey uh, Jimmy how you doing and you know of course the BS begins it's like <laughs> oh a little tight little tap I'm just gonna go out there and see see what I got you know no biggie no biggie and of course you know at mile two and a half on a 5k it's like death match 2000 you know? and then we get done and it was like you know not a lot of sharp elbows or anything just you know nothing's nothing sweeter than going by Jimmy and saying good job man good job and then and just kind of distancing him just enough just enough to poke it or or hitting 2003 and kicking yourself in the rear side because it's like I know exactly where those three four seconds were I could have broken 20 and I got all pissy whiny on this little incline and it's just like you know grit it out and I would have been sub 20 and oh by the way I gotta come back <laughs> yeah. oh we've all we've all we've all been there as endurance athletes and as runners in particular yeah yeah. And you need you need that goal. It's either a personal goal. Hey, let's break 20. Let's break 40 on a 10K. Uh, let's beat Jimmy. Um, let's not lose to Jimmy. Um, you know, all of that. But the, the cool thing about uh, running events in that uh, you know, milieu is that um, you get done. And then the first thing you do is you high five Jimmy. And it's like, man, that was that was epic. It's like, I, I didn't think I was going to shake it. It's like, Oh yeah, I had everything, you know, and it, you know, the stories, the camaraderie, and you see how, um, you know, I watched it recently with the, uh, blossoming of a running club in Exeter, Exeter run club. It was just like, wow, where did that come from? And the next thing, you know, they've got 30, 40 people showing up at the Rockingham, uh, rec trailhead for, you know, Wednesday night runs. And, you know, the, uh, the rail trail is excellent for that because you can't get lost and you really can't get dropped. I mean, you can physically get dropped, but 
you know you're either going out three miles and coming back three or you're going out till the first runner comes back at you and then it's like okay i'll turn around i'll run back and then everybody gets together for a uh a soda or a beer and you know it's like gee jeepers is not out there tonight yeah but we got it done that kind of thing yeah right for sure yeah yeah for sure um yeah so how so how is this idea of this running shoe brand uh how is it how is it spawned how, how did how did this 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 emerging passion of yours um uh with running and your your acquaintance and subsequent friendship with mike um and his wife how did that how did that turn into a running shoe brand well that's that's the interesting thing is um I'm going to say it was early 90s, right about the time, you know, that I'd gotten into running proper, you know, I maybe had run a marathon or so, but I was doing, uh, at the time, Mike was working in the Portsmouth area and I had an office in the, uh, the Portsmouth area. So, uh, you know, I, I was doing long runs with him and uh, actually let me rescale that. Uh, I'm, I'm missing decades. See what happens when you get, get old and infirm, Chris, uh, <laughs> I was in Boston from uh, probably 91 to 2000. Then I came to Portsmouth. So it was early 2000. So I was full-fledged runner. I had, I'd, I'd done pretty much uh, all the all the things I wanted to do, and I was comfortable in my uh, training, but I was still doing long runs. And Mike had an office in Portsmouth, so we got to do uh, lunchtime long runs together. And he, as I said, he was a uh, an emigre from uh, the shoe, being a shoe dog, having worked at Nike, then Saucony and New Balance. He was uh, legit in the tech world by 2000, but still running a lot. Um, and he was complaining that running shoe companies were screwing it up. They're just putting too many uh, gigas into their shoes and driving up prices and changing models, uh, you know, pretty much annually uh, making quote unquote improvements uh, where they weren't necessary. Uh, he said, you know, I've got an idea for, first of all, he was going to make uh, uh, shoes for the, for the aging demographic. And I was like, I don't know how that's going to fly. Uh, but we continued to pursue that notion. And then we came up with, how about a, uh, a design that stays the same for five years? As like, that's brilliant. Plus, whatever we start would be small. Uh, so we're going to have all sorts of inventory. So it's like, oh, yeah, we, we have you. Uh, the consumer in mind, you know, there is a benefit there. We're keeping a model you like in line for at least five years, uh, but also uh, we don't have to worry about, you know, remainders and, and uh, you know, leftover uh, shoe stuff. So in 2002 or three, we really started pulling it together and we did a, uh, we did a, uh, what I would call a friends and family uh, capital raise uh, but we pulled together uh, $100,000 uh, to start this company, which was our first mistake. We were woefully undercapitalized, you know, uh, plinking a pebble at, uh, at Nike's gate. Um, but we started it nonetheless. Uh, I believe Mike took out uh, some equity on his house and he was still working, but uh, we put some uh, a lot of sweat equity into it. Um, I personally didn't have any money in, into the launch. Uh, you know, I I didn't have a uh, the wherewithal. Plus, I was like, eh, I don't know about the risk. But I ended up getting equity through uh, 
through my diligence and you know becoming part of the squad. But th so this is early 2002, 2003. I think we had some demo shoes that we took to the uh, starting line at Hopkinton, and people were really, really enthused about it. So we thought, okay, we've got something going here. Uh, of course, that's a subset of the uh, overall running market. That's the you know impassioned and the informed, uh, but that's still a good chunk of the market. Uh, so we ended up ordering uh, uh, 3,000 pair of shoes across a distribution of sizes that we thought would sell. Uh, and of course, you always get that slightly wrong. So we ended up with with remainders. But the way we did it in those days is, you know, we had an agent. You know, we were based in the United States and we designed and developed the shoes here. Developed means picking the materials and specking stuff out. But we had an actual manufacturer. Uh, done in Asia, first completely in China, and then uh, uh, later uh, we had the outsoles made in Vietnam, and they were married to the uppers in China. But we were ordering, you know, three thousand pair at a whack, and in order to do that, you had to post a letter of credit, uh, and then you had to bond that, which basically said, you know, if if you don't pay, you will pay. We'll figure out, you know, how to get at you. So we would. Uh, and they would charge interest while you weren't paying. So we'd pay down the letter of credit as we were selling shoes. And just about the time we were running out of the last batch of shoes, it's like, crap, we're going to need more shoes. We'd, we'd extinguish the letter of credit and bump it forward. Uh, so meantime, so you got offshore manufacturing in Asia, uh, design and development here. Uh, then you have distribution. You got to get these, you know, you know, shoes and feet together. So we were doing literally hundreds of race expos uh, between 2003 and 2007. Uh, race expos as far south as um, Richmond, I believe, the Richmond Marathon. And I actually did the San Francisco Marathon, went out there. Mm -hmm. We shipped a bunch of shoes out and I met up with them out there. And we had a booth at the uh, San Francisco Marathon. So trying to get people to uh, try them on and buy directly from us. Uh, and brilliantly at the time, we had PayPal, but we still had to run a knuckle buster uh, credit card machine. And in order to confirm that, you needed people's email addresses. So we're collecting email addresses by the score at all these far-flung uh, areas, but principally New England. Uh, <laughs> and trying to crack the uh, retail storefront market. Uh, so calling on you know, the likes of Runner's Alley and Marathon Sports and uh, Reds. Uh, Reds actually carried us, uh, Joe Kings carried us. We got into about 20 storefronts, but the problem there is getting paid and getting reorders, you know, when, you know, if they don't support the brand in the store, it doesn't move. And when it doesn't move, they don't do reorders. And the next thing you know, Loco Shoes are down in the bargain basement, literally at Joe King's and uh, Red Shoe Barn. Um, so retail was really tough to crack. We, we, what we learned is what we didn't know, which was a lot. It would fill a container ship from China. <laughs> um, but anyway, that was our, our jam was trying to build the brand, say, 2004 to 2007. And it's like, you know, there's got to be a better way. Meantime, Mike's still working part time at his job. Uh, he was with Enterasis Cabletron at the time in marketing. Uh, 
he has a, a, a very good marketing mind. Um, and I had a full-time gig. I was a partner at an executive search firm in Portsmouth. And it's like, we got to do something. So we decided, well, if we can't get our shoes out to the people, let's bring the people to our shoes. So uh, we decided to put on a half marathon of which there was a dearth in New England. I mean, there was the Apple Fest half marathon. Uh, I think maybe there was the covered bridges up in uh, Vermont. Uh, I'm forgetting one, uh, but there, you know, you could count them on one hand pretty much because people that's, that's a long distance. The only people that ran half marathons were typically marathoners looking for a trainer. So, um, but we decided, okay, we think the market's ripe for this. So we launched a, uh, a half marathon in our hometown of New Marquette, New Hampshire, the Great Bay Half Marathon in 2007 and a thousand people showed up <laughs> let me well, uh, let me pause you for a moment there yep so what <laughs> what did you or mike know about uh race directing um <laughs> at that time that you decided to put on your first race a half marathon nonetheless and, a, and an event that <laughs> a thousand people showed up to um what we knew was we didn't have the answer to this question. How hard could it be? <laughs> um, but we, what we learned, we learned, we were in the, we, we got our, the school of hard knocks. We were in the crucible. You know, Mike had done a bunch of uh, racing and I think he may have helped out some at, at various events. Um, so, and we're both, uh, you know, detail-minded. Actually, Linda is is uh, trumps both of us being detail-minded. Mike keeps all his details in his head uh, and sometimes whips them out at the last minute. Uh, I'm more of a spreadsheet kind of guy. Uh, but no, we didn't know um, how hard it would be. And the, and the, you know, Race Director 101, the stuff that comes to mind to you, Chris, is like, you got to nail down the venue. Make sure you've got that set you know mike was like oh yeah i talked with somebody at the high school and they said it would be okay you know and in his mind check you know that's okay it's like no they might have a form that you have to fill out maybe maybe a certificate of insurance or two um and then next and and this is less critical maybe to mountain racing but uh, more critical to road racing and that is you got to get the municipality, specifically the police department and public safety on board. And I always lead with the uh, with the PD because uh, it makes them feel like they were asked first instead of finding out from the select board that it was approved. And it's also very powerful when you go before uh, permitting authorities like a select board or a city council or a rec department and say, and I've already uh, talked with Chief Muss and Futs and uh, we worked out a, a safety plan uh, that we feel will be uh, in, in good good stead. Um, and then the next thing is volunteers. It, they cannot be an afterthought. They are literally the lifeblood of your, uh, of your organi organization uh, being organized. Uh, you got to nail those down. And it's all, it can be a pain in the keister, but it's always worthwhile, specifically, um, I have there from individual volunteers. I always went with volunteer groups with a leader 
specifically a community-based group, whether it's a student group or an athletic group or a uh, you know Boy Scouts or a church group or whatever, where you know we will quote unquote pay for the experience, uh, and it's and it's going to be a meaningful amount. So I usually start at like three hundred dollars per group for a water stop or something like that. Uh, so those are the things that we learned was venue and municipality and uh, volunteers. If you have those, um, don't forget porta potties, but you, you know, you can add those later. Although it's getting harder and harder to book those, my friend, you know, you gotta, you gotta be six or eight weeks out. We found that out firsthand a couple of, uh, a couple of weeks back uh, at our Kingman farm trail race. Yes. Mm. It's really hard. And, and all the, uh, all the mom and pop, uh, companies, you know, like we used to be a big Dave's fan, Dave Septic uh, out of Manchester. You know, I think I talked with Dave once, but I talked with Tim, the general manager and uh, Genia, the uh, the office manager. We were like pals. You know, I knew she had two two kids and a dog, all this stuff. And I negotiated a credible rate. Now it's like they got snapped up by United Site Services. Um, and to their credit, I mean, they have uh, nicer units, cleaner units, newer units. And when they do deliver, they, you know, it's, it's, I never have to track the drivers down. They know exactly where they're going because they have probably some kind of uh, app on their phone that has a pin on it and they just punch that in and go. Uh, how do we get on porta potties? But while we're on porta potties, it's important to have enough porta potties. And here's, here's what we discovered. Um, and you, you stop me when you want to move on the next topic. Yeah, no, I, no, I'm I'm really curious about your formula here because we have a porta potty formula as well. So I'm yeah. yes, I'm always always eager to hear the thoughts of other race directors with respect to, uh, yeah, crappers. Well, well, it, yes, and, and in college, you know, I had a, a, a I majored in tentology, but I I did pick up a minor in portopathology, so <laughs> I, I feel pretty comfortable with my rubric. But we used to go. Uh, one for 50. Um, and when we started uh, with a half marathon, I'd say 30% of our runners were female. Um, and we made, actually, we didn't make a conscious effort. What happened is women are smarter and a lot of our events were selling out and they're like, Hey, you know, this event's going to sell out. They round up their friends and boom, five, 10 of them are signing up at a whack. And they're like, I'm going to get in on the early pricing. I know I'm going to do the event. My friends are going to do the event and it's going to sell out. And then you know, when it sells out, then you get the mouth breathing guys. Like, I, I meant to sign up, but I didn't sign up. And it's like, geez, that's kind of too bad. Well, is there anything I can do? And it's like, yeah, sign up earlier next year. But the net result was, and I'll get back to all women and one lucky guy, because that's that was a fun race that we put on for a few years. Uh, the net result was we got more female participation uh just based on the fact that our races were very popular uh so what we ended up getting is any given half marathon we're getting 60 65 percent female and tip chapeau to to women who race because there's a lot more involvement uh if you're dropping the duke i mean everybody has to uh, drop trow and you know that's the same amount of time try to be efficient in there you know, don't we don't have to rap on the door, but uh, but if you're tinkling, I mean, guys, they just whip it out, 
one and done. You know, the girls, they have to, one, two layers has to come down, da, da, da. It just, it incrementally it adds. So we had to go from uh, 50, one per 50, one porto per 50. We, we did one per 40, and then we would pad it upwards a little bit. Okay. So what's what's your rubric, Chris? Yeah, it's one one per fifty. Yeah, um, that that must be that must be in the manual somewhere. I, I don't know where I came up with that, but but your yeah the way you're describing this um, makes makes a lot of sense. I'll never forget. Um, my wife did the um, um, the main coast marathon a handful of years ago, within the last decade. And the Maine Coast Marathon, as you know, is 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 very well attended. Yep. Um, and uh, they had a bank of porta potties, which which we we were there early, so there wasn't really anybody there yet. And as I looked at this bank of porta potties, heck, there must have been thirty or forty of them if there was if there was one. And and at first glance, I thought, wow, that seems like overkill. Until um, folks started arriving at the venue and those lines began to fill up. Um, and next thing you know, uh, there had to have been 30 or 40 people deep in each line. Um, and and the, the, the weight was just extraordinary. And you could see at some point uh, men peeling out of the line to go yep. take care of their business in the woods, which as an event director, it's the last thing you want is people peeing on, on, on neighbors bushes. Right. Correct. Yeah. That's that, that can be a deal breaker and go and goes back to venue and municipal relations, you know, especially in the age of, you know, everybody's phone is a camera. And it's like, <laughs> yeah. ah, right. Check, check this out. Yeah. So, yeah. So, and then there's, I'll, I'll tell you how we we help solve that a little bit, but there's also configuration. Yeah, let's let's get into the weeds here on porta potties because I'm I'm sure that's why folks tune into this podcast is to find it. out. I yeah, love it. but perhaps they'll come away with a glimmer <laughs> of insight, and that and that is never put your uh, your configuration in a U shape. <laughs> It just it doesn't okay. work well. If you want to if you want to do the bulging up to, upside down C, that's okay. That's okay. If you want an array of, of piss ants, that's the way to go. But if if you want a uh, a Benny a Benny Hill experience, then do the horseshoe. Uh, the other thing that we had, and this was Mike's idea, um, we made up signs that said "line up here" there on stakes, and then we put a row of cones between and like each three to five porta potties. And the implication was whoever's lined up here kind of owns those three to five. Um, we tried doing it physically, putting people there. It's like, hey, everybody spread, spread out. And it's like, I'm not giving my place up in line. You know, that kind of thing. But if you just suggest, it's like, if you can just spread people out across that array of 30, because what was happening at, at MCM was probably, you know, there was this, uh, you know, uh, goose migration V, you know, with one person at the front. And if it takes, if that person's watching, not all of the portos as they open up, and then if somebody has to tap them on the shoulder, we're talking seconds here, but they aggregate, man. When you're trying to get people to the starting line. Yeah, so, sure. um, yeah. Yeah. But I think I think um, we've we've done a it's a horrifying thought, but we've done a deep enough dive into porta potties. 
unless you've had the experience of retrieving somebody's cell phone or keys. So, so, so to 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 circle back um, to the, the 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 premise that um, uh, perhaps the way to move shoes is to bring the audience to you uh, yeah. rather than rather than attempting to find the audience through your through the the distribution channels that you were using initially. So the question is. Did that model work? Were you did you did you find that you were selling more shoes um, when you moved into the event management space? We we never found out because it was an epiphany with that first race, where you know no offshore manufacturing, no retail channel, everybody's smiling, prepaid. We we began the pivot then or shortly thereafter. Um, we may have done one more order of shoes, uh, but by then we were, uh, this was probably, yeah, like I said, 2007, 2008. Um, and we were on the road. Uh, and over the next few years uh, built up, uh, you know, by 2010, we had half a dozen races. And that was a, an inflection point for myself, which I can uh, get into if you'd like. But, you know, basically it was like, okay, you know, when you stop banging your head against the wall, you realize how good it feels to not do so. Um, and it was like, this is, this is a way out because all we ever wanted to do was hang with our peeps and driving down to Richmond as much fun as it was to meet with folks down there, it was just time consuming, expensive, and I'm not sure how much it moved the needle on our inventory. And it was quite literally, you know, finishing up one order just so you could make the next order. And meantime, taking on a little bit of debt and aggregating debt. Uh, and, you know, Mike, Mike was uh, the, the biggest shareholder and he's like, something's got to give. So um, we kind of pivoted uh, 2000 seven, eight timeframe from being a shoe company, running shoe company to being a running events company and built it up uh, to, like I said, about a half a dozen events by 2010, at, at which point uh, I was a shareholder, um, a minor shareholder, but a shareholder nonetheless, and uh, heavily involved in uh, presenting uh, the events we did have. And coincidentally, um, the wheels uh, really began to wobble on uh, retained executive search uh, in the aftermath of 2008 uh, and the fiscal crisis then. Uh, and race running events turned out to be pretty much recession proof. Um, so I was at low ebb in my partnership at the executive search firm. And I remember to this day, uh, we, had, uh, we had a loco office and storefront on Main Street in Newmarket. Uh, I've still got the sign, it's hanging up in my barn, um, but uh, walked in and, uh, you know, chatting with Mike and he's like, I'm, I'm kind of beside myself here. He's like, there's so much opportunity. I just, I, I'm spread thin trying to present these six events and do the runoff of Loco. And I was like, well, I'm, I'm in a different spot. It's like, I'm twiddling my thumbs on the executive search side and I'm looking for, Hey, what's our man's next adventure. And he's like, well, let's, let's pencil it out. He's like, I can't pay, 
you know, we can't pay you a lot. You know, I'm not getting paid much either, but, you know, we can share in the upside. Uh, and both our wives had had jobs at the time. And it's like, okay, uh, I'm in. I mean, I, I'm not one for being sentimental about uh, my eight-year tenure as an executive recruiter any more than I was in my 20-year career as a uh, insurance shell. So um, I jumped in with both feet and we built the thing up between 2010 and 2015. We built it up to, I want to say, 16, 18 events. And there was a an inflection point in 2015, 16, where uh, there was another player in the market. Uh, Millennium had come on strong, uh, different kind of vibe, but obviously successful. Um, but then the other piece was everybody was a race director. You know, the future farmers of America, 5K, they get 48 runners. Ha, ha, ha. That's not going to hurt us. Well, you, you aggregate 10 of those uh, on any given weekend, and, and we're wondering why we're kind of flatlining. And at that point, uh, by 2016, we're looking at each other, and it's like one of us is going to have to get a job. And we're like, you know, the Ed, Edvard Munch, the scream, we're like, <laughs> so we we really knuckled down on expenses and we bumped up our marketing. I went to work on social media marketing and that that kind of helped some. We knuckled down on our expenses, you know, uh, really pleaded with our vendors saying, hey, this is a good relationship, but you got to treat us right. Um, and and it was working, uh, but still uh, not flatline, but the inflation, you know, the, uh, the, the rise over run was, uh, meager, uh, non-epic as we'd call it in the gravel worlds. Um, uh, along comes rugged events out of Boston. They're a short form, uh, obstacle course racing company, uh, backed with shark tank money. Uh, Mark Cuban had money in That's right. and, uh, they offered to buy us, um, not a, a killer uh, acquisition uh, price, but they said, look, you've got some gems here that are being, you know, under, they're underperforming. And we, we think we have a five person social media marketing group. Uh, you know, we'll put our full muscle behind you. Uh, we'll pay you for five years and you'll have profit sharing, you know, a, a generous profit share. And, I said, Mike, we got we got to do it, but be, keep in mind this is an investor, and at some point they're going to want to have their money out. Uh, but let's play it for for what it's worth, and it was phenomenal. Uh, we grew to twenty four events uh, in the span of two years. Uh, profitability was was great, and and runner engagement was great too, which is uh, we were so happy to have those big crowds back. You know, and, and big, most of our events were 1,000 to 1,500 runners, uh, with the exception of uh, Smutty Nose Rock Fest, uh, which was uh, five or 6,000 runners. But it was so great to have those crowds back. It just, it made it feel like, yeah, we're, we're doing things right. And everybody was, you know, the runners were happy, we were happy. And that worked out great until uh, 2019 when, um, Rugged sold themselves to Gatehouse Media, which owned like Seacoast Media Group uh, and 300 other like properties across the U.S. 
And that was the beginning of the end in that it was like 2019-ish. Then they merged with Gannett USA Today. So I've worked in the corporate world. And I, I in this instance, I was go gone from being one of three employees to one of 65,000. I was doing online diversity training, uh, expense reports. My skin was getting itchy. <laughs> and then this little thing called COVID-19 hit, uh, which basically flatlined every live event. Uh, I, I also remember our last full live event was the Hampton Half Marathon, and it's uh, early March. And we have, you know, we're serving beer inside the uh, Ashworth, and everybody knows that this thing is coming, and there's not a mask to be found in there. And we're kind of joking about, well, this will be like a bad flu, and hope you don't get it, and hope you don't get it. Um, and by April, we were not having events. So to Gannett's credit, they kept the payroll flowing uh, and there was no profit to be shared, um, notwithstanding their wonky accounting methods. By then they'd taken over all the accounting. So there was no way for us to tell if we were profitable or not, but they, they pivoted heavily into virtual, which is actually fairly successful virtual events. Um, but my contract would have ended with them at the tail end of 2021, uh, December of 21. And they came to me in February of 21 and said, hey, we want to buy out. And I was like, fine. <laughs> so that was, that was good timing. So so ended my, well, apparently so ended my affiliation with Loco. So they bought me out. And then four weeks later, they said, we can't do this without you. Will you come back as a contractor <laughs> at this price? And I was like, uh, la, 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 I can't hear you. So they, they, they bumped it uh, a little bit, but they're just, they're, I can't say uh, how they're managing things. All I know is, you know, they're challenged at this point. So I worked with them for a bit and then I decided, you know what, uh, life is too short. I've got other things I could be doing with my time for this kind of money. Um, and at that point, really, I mean, I'll be 65 in November. I was like, okay, so maybe this is early retirement because who's going to hire a 64 year old guy with no marketable skills so. <laughs> well, except, except you could sell insurance and you can put on events and uh yeah, yeah. recruit people so you so not 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 no skills but uh right yeah well no skills that i wanted to deploy like i said <laughs> my skin was itchy when i when i was doing the expense report so anyway it was it was you know for me a relatively happy parting i mean it was bittersweet uh, to close the chapter, but I knew when I signed in 2017, when I signed off on the uh, the sale to Rugged, that you know this this is the beginning of the end, uh, and it could last five years. My only hope was that you know the success that we had for the first two years continued for four or five years, and it actually lasted you know two or three years. So, um, but thing stuff happens, and. I, I had written into the contract that I'd started this little side hustle, uh, gravel, GRVL cycling. Uh, you know, first first event was in 2011, I believe. And 
I, it was loco cycling at the time and Mike was even a shareholder. So as part of the sale, uh, I had to buy Mike out, which was, you know, short money. Um, and I had to, uh, change the name, um, to GRVL uh, or something other than loco, which I did. Uh, but the genesis of it was, Hey, events management and this gravel thing looks kind of cool. Um, and, and I actually credit, uh, uh, Gary Smith who owned, uh, he owned independent fabrication in Newmarket. I helped coax him and his wife into that spot in the mills. Uh, and we can talk about the new Newmarket community development corp in a bit, if you'd like, but basically rehab the mills and we're looking for tenants, lured him in there, became a friend. And he was talking about this thing, uh, D2 R2. It's like, wasn't that the, the funny robot in the star Wars movie? And he's like, no, that's R2 D2. D2 R2 is the Mac daddy of gravel. Sandy Whittlesley out of Deerfield, Mass, pulled together the Deerfield uh, Dirt Road Rondonet, so D2R2. Uh, Sandy's a fabulous chap and one of the OG uh, adventure riders out there. And he had built this thing up to like a thousand plus riders. Super chill. Uh, used to be timed. He gave up on the timing and everything. So, and, and Gary kept yammering, oh, D2R2, D2R2. And I finally wrote it as like, shit, man, this is a blast. You know, I'm with my peeps because what had happened uh, running wise during, during the growth of Loco is I got older and I got slower. And that uh, nominal competitive mindset, you know, when I started creeping into the low 20s in my 5Ks, it's like, this sucks. Uh <laughs> But I, I had also picked up cycling as a cross train. Uh, and the more I did of it, uh, the happier I was. So uh, I bought my first gravel bike through Gary. It was a Ridley Expo cross bike, nasty machine, twitchiest thing on the downhills you could ever imagine. I mean, I used to, I, there'd be one rider ahead of me, my vision would blur and all of a sudden they were like, four riders ahead of me and I would just aim for the middle figuring I'm either going to tap this guy's wheel or I'm going to, I'm going to bridge the gap. It was, it was bad. It was bad. But anyway, D2R2, uh, kind of little, 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 uh, flame underneath me. I was like, this is cool. And guess what? It's an event and it's in an area that I'm having abiding and growing interest in and not for nothing, but, might be nice to balance the portfolio a little bit uh, and have some fun while I'm doing it. So uh, I started the uh, you know, the original uh, GRVL event, gravel cycling, was uh, Raid Rockingham, which is now kind of a uh, venerable uh, calendar day. And funnily enough, it was it's always early June. That was like the Red Shoe Barn race used to be. Right. You know, you'd show up and it, like the cobwebs have been dusted off and you get your first bit of training in. It's like, hey, let's see how this goes kind of thing in June. Now, of course, you know, the season never ends between fat bikes and adventure bikes and Mondo challenges, et cetera. But at the time it was like, wow, this is pretty early for a, for a bike event because most bike events were July, August, September. Right. Uh, and parallel universes, cyclocross took off in the fall, uh, early winter, and gravel took off in the spring. And that became 
you know, late winter, early spring, uh, that kind of stuff. And then fat bike uh, stuff became a thing, which, you know, I got into for a bit. But anyway, uh, Ray Rockingham was the first one. And I, I can go back, but I'll take a stab. I had 76 riders there. And it finished in the construction yard between the two mills behind, uh, on Main Street in Newmarket. Uh, we had beer. I don't know if it was legally served. Yes, it was. It was. We were most definitely permitted. I always permit the beer, uh, and and pulled pork sandwiches, and it was a blast. Yeah, and it it must it must have felt like a total success. It did. It did. I was pinching myself. I just looked around. It was a glorious day. People sitting on the steps, people sitting on construction kit equipment, noshing on a sandwich, swapping stories out there. Uh, you know, the only complaint I had, it was a 45 miler. The only complaint I had was you got to make it longer. And so what I did is the next year I added uh, a 60 miler. Uh, and those two routes have remained virtually unchanged since I launched. The The only downside being you had to stitch together the gravel in Rockingham County because uh, it's ever more developed. And for a while there, every year I was losing half, three quarters of a mile. I was joking. I mean, if we get more pavement, I'm going to have to call it road Rockingham because <laughs> it's only about 37% gravel, but it's my biggest event by far. Sells out. Um, and I think people just like it for the fact that it's modest climbing, modest amount of gravel, but just enough. And I got one optional class six section on the long route where you can scratch your leg or get a little bit of mud on your frame and in your, your shins and come back and, and talk gnarly if you want. Well, I mean, I can I can personally attest to it as I had the opportunity to ride it uh, several years ago. And um uh, while not, not, I'm not a huge fan of, of asphalt, um, uh, for me, um, um, it, it was it was well, it was the party, um, yeah. and uh, uh, and it and it was you and uh, and your organization and your enthusiasm uh, for the sport that drew me to the event. Because I had uh, at the time a number of buddies who also helped to talk me into it. But uh, yeah. But, but I can personally attest to, um, to to how phenomenal that event is because I had the opportunity to do it. Well, I appreciate that. And there's a vibe I've been going for since day one. And we alluded to this uh, maybe in our pre-talk about uh, getting more uh, women and more diversity in in our uh, events. And in, in the cycling side, I call it the spandex bro culture, uh, which, you know, I, you know, there's plenty of opportunities for hammerheads to go out there and really, uh, you know, grind it out. But there's also a, a you know, an affector, uh, you know, an attitude that I, I just, I can't relate to because I've never been in that pantheon. I've never been, you know, leading a, a break in a criterium or whatever. So I just, I don't get it. But what I do get is there's a lot of assholic behavior that comes along with it. And, you know, I coined a, a term, which I'm now using kind of as my tagline, that's friends on bikes. And it's like, you know, run what you brung. We don't care, you know, if it's the latest and greatest equipment. We're not going to, we're not going to, test you or your equipment so much that you need you know special skills or special equipment or special kit or whatever 
we're just going to send you out there. And if you don't have a friend to ride with at the start, you will have by the finish. And then you're back at the party and you're saying, oh, man, first time I ever did Woodman. And, you know, I thought it was wet. And people say, oh, you should have seen some years. You know, you yeah, it was hike a bike and everybody was up to their knees. And it's like so I was feeling kind of lucky until I tipped over into that puddle, you know, kind of thing. This this always stories, stories to be made, memories, uh, friendships blossom, you know, et cetera. And and that to me and and you see it. Uh, you know, on the, on the mountain running side uh, and endurance, you know, where, you know, it's a community and you want that community accessible. Um, so do we have hammerheads that show up? Yes, we do. Uh, and thankfully they blast off the front and it's like, they'll come in and it's like, what's my time? And it's like, uh, I don't know. When did you leave? <laughs> I don't even, I don't have a watch. Where's my phone? <laughs> it's like, no, you know, wh I where are the results? And it's like, Right there in your chest, buddy. <laughs> I mean, do you think do you think as presenting these uh, these events um, as as events rather than races, do you think that tends to um, reduce the number of, of hammerheads that show up that are that are so focused on on time and place uh, and performance um, uh, and and you know that th these events or experiences tend to attract a little different crowd? Yeah, I, I, my goal is, you know, in all my presentation, whether it's the website or my limited social media outreach, certainly on the day, I try to create, you know, this is a ride, not a race. Um, and I have had some racers uh, come up and say, well, you know, at least could you keep the mass start, you know, so we can look good as we as we take off. Parenthetically, they don't say that last part, but that, that's what they mean. Um and, you know, in certain instances, no, I can't. Crassbury, uh, Vermont, where I have Ray Lamoille, I was asked by the venue, because uh, they've got their own town gown relationship challenges. It's like, could we not send everybody out at once uh, because you're creating this kind of plug, at least for the first few miles where there's masses of riders. So I do a, I do a start window. Hey, anytime between 745 and 815. Uh, I'd, I'd lean toward the earlier because why not? It's cooler and you'll be back to the party sooner kind of thing. Um, and I get more appreciation for that uh, as creating a chill vibe than I do the feedback from from the hammerheads. And the hammerheads, uh, you know, just like in running, uh, the people that can run, you know, sixes, sub sixes, they're, they're at the pointy end of the spear. And if I lose them, um, you know, I, I lament not having them there, having a good time. But if they're they were bringing attitude anyway, and they're such a small subset, I I really don't mind. Has it has it hurt my attendance? I think probably in that um, you know none of my events. I cap my biggest event at 500 riders, and there's a reason for that. Uh, but none of my events even get into. Uh, the same area as the other newer uh, gravel races that have, you know, big sponsorship and expos and lots of spandex bros and broettes. Uh, yeah, they, they tout, you know, the pros that are coming, et cetera. Um, 
but I don't care. It's like, that's a personal choice. There's an inflection point in running events, which you may have found and also cycling events, but in running events, um, you know, it's around the three to 500. It's just as hard to put on a 60 person event as it is a 700 person event, mm-hmm. but at three to 500, the tenor changes somewhat. And then above a thousand, it changes somewhat. And then if you get, you know, much above a thousand into the two thousands, it's, it's uh, no longer one-on-one it's, it's zone. You know, you got to go zone and make sure you got it covered and apologize if there's mistakes and we'll try to do better the next yeah. time. And, and, you know, I, I have always found that there will always be, there's a fixed percentage of people that are going to, that are going to provide some, some critical negative feedback to you, regardless mm-hmm. uh, of how well you do or the mistakes you make. There's that, per, that fixed percentage exists. Um, but the larger your, the larger your crowd, the greater the number of those people, right? Correct. Um, and so, um, yeah. And so there, you know, there, there's a there's a trade off to it as well. And I think, I think events lose a little bit of their personality and their personal touch, mm-hmm. uh, um, uh, just in an effort to be big and to be and to be bigger. So, you know, as I've now been in the event management space for a little while, um, I I can now personally see. Uh, and professionally see uh, the benefits of slightly smaller events than to putting on the large, grandiose uh, yeah. events. Um, it, you know, and, and, and one, one point to make about timed events um, versus, uh, 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 you know, rides that are experiences. Uh, truth is that Strava is a thing. Um, mm-hmm. and, <laughs> and nowadays everywhere and or anywhere you ride, there is a Strava segment. Yeah. Um, even though, you know, uh, Ray Rockingham may not be timed, that doesn't mean that there aren't opportunities for those people that are overly competitive to ride certain segments of the Raid Rockingham as hard as they can. And now, as you know, with the uh, with the with the um, with the advances in GPS technology, uh, you know, your little Garmin bike computer will actually alert you as you're approaching a Strava segment, right? So even right. if our man isn't timing Raid Rockingham, yeah. uh, you're out there riding, you know, Strava segments and and competing against your friends if that's what you so if that's what you so, right. so choose. Um, you know, a, a really important uh, aspect of your of your events, and this this speaks to me. Um, uh, and, and, and acidotic racing in that um, each of the events that you host, um, you know, Raid Rockingham, Raid Lamoille, Kearsarge Classic, and the Mount Kearsarge Hill Climb um, benefits a nonprofit in, in, in some way. Yeah. Um, wh- why is that important to you? Why, why, why is that an element of your event management? Well, there's the practical aspect of it, which I'll get out of the way right up front. And that is the the more uh, community outreach you have for an event, uh, the barrier to exit uh, is is raised. Um, So if there are complaints, you get a lot of good grace if you're if you're supporting local. But it actually transcends that. That's that's a a happy uh, impact. Uh, from doing so, if if you look at the the nonprofits that I support, I try to make the uh, the donations 
uh, meaningful in the community in which we're operating or mission aligned. So uh, let's take uh, let's take uh, Raid Rockingham as an example. Uh, I've my my rest stops. Uh, I've supported uh, Oyster River Women Aid uh, through that. You know, so I get half a dozen uh, people uh, taking care of the rest stop, and I make a donation to Oyster River Women Aid uh, on on their behalf. And and they you know, the volunteers are so happy to do that. Um, but uh, originally, I started tithing a portion of my registration fee uh, to go to uh, Southeast Land Trust, CELT. And I specifically earmarked it for a bridge that was going to go across the, uh, uh, the beaver pond in the burn spur area uh, of their Piscassic Greenway. Uh, and over time, I, I forget the final number, but I contributed $12,000, $13,000 toward this thing. And the executive director, Brian, a good friend, was like, this is awesome because I can leverage that into grant writing. And I was thinking, okay, they're going to put up, you know, a typical 18, 24-inch, you know, MTB mountain bike uh, bridge across the thing. And you've been out there, you've seen pictures of it. I call it the Bridge Mahal. It's like phenomenal. And I can't count the number of selfies and, and uh, other pictures that have been taken out there by runners, riders, walkers, et cetera, because it's got a, a wildlife viewing area in the middle and, and uh, chairs you can sit down. It's, it's gotta be six feet wide with railings, with ramped approaches. It's ADA accessible if you can make it that far out there. It's just state of the art. And I was blown away that, that I got to, you know, help participate in its creation. Um, and I don't talk about that much. That's part of my shtick is I like to give, but give quietly. If I get acknowledged, I, I accept the, uh, uh, the thanks, but I, I try not to, to blow it out of proportion because yeah, great. I gave 12 to $13,000, but I didn't, it was the riders that did. And that was in the area era that you wrote it, uh, so you did, Chris. You helped pay for that bridge, so you know. And and I try to let the the riders know, and I keep thinking of ways to incorporate that into like an optional class six uh, segment because we can connect back up to the rail trail. But I do similar with um, uh, you know Ray Lamoille. You know I support uh, the Crassberry Saplings uh, Child Care Center uh, in in excess of what their volunteer commitment would mean. And for a small organization, when you start pumping $500,000, uh, $1,500 their way, uh, they notice it. It's like their treasurer is like, wow, did you know? You know, we got a check from, from Gravel for 500 bucks out of the blue. And it's like, you know, thank you. But I try to make them aware that it's coming. But uh, I think, you know, Doing well by doing good uh, is is a simple credo, but um, it helps me sleep at night. I mean, I am a for-profit. Gravel cycling makes a profit. There, I said it. <laughs> I am not mooring my yacht on the lamprey, uh, on, on the backs of uh, these riders. I try to keep my uh, entry fees reasonable, which has become a thing. Um, you know, going down the, the entry fee uh, 
uh, wormhole uh, could be, you know, there's just no percentage in it. You know, I, I, I just say, you know, this is what I charge. I believe it's reasonable. Um, and you are, you are uh, welcome to vote with your pocketbook if you don't want to ride. You, nobody says you have to do this ride. Um, and I understand everybody's circumstances are different. And that's that. So, yeah, and uh, I, I mean, along the same lines of as the, the those those two nonprofits for those two rides. Um, uh, talk about the other uh, two events on your on your on your event calendar and uh, who they benefit. Sure. Um, so uh, let's go through um, calendar wise. So that yeah. makes it easier. We talked, we talked about Raid Rockingham that started off with Celt. Once we got the bridge built, I, I poured it over to uh, the um, uh, Newfield Snow Raiders, which is a uh, snowmobile club. And if you use snowmobile trails in whatever your endurance uh, sport of choice or choices is, thank the snowmobile clubs. Uh, whether you're riding on the Rockingham Recreational Trail or say over uh, Chris's way, what do they call uh, your park now? Uh, right off of Route 4? Uh, uh, yeah, Northwood Meadows. Yeah, Northwood Meadows. Yep. Uh, I'm now up here in, in Warner, so I've got the Kearsars Trail Snails. What is the name of your snowmobile club that handles Northwood Meadows? Uh, uh, yeah, and I, I, should, I should know too, because I've uh, actually run into their uh, not literally run into, but I've come across their groomer uh, in the wintertime, fat biking out there. Um, yep. And I'll, I will. <laughs> oh, I want, I wanted you to say it right now because I was going to say whoever it is, if you're listening and you live in Stratford County, make a donation to that club. And I, I will, <laughs> after the show, uh, I will, I will look the name up because it's not on the tip of my tongue. Yep. Uh, I'll, I'll include a link uh, uh, on my Twitter account. Uh, yeah. There to their organization because I, I, I and, and in fact you were the one that turned me on to that to that premise. I think in fact we we might have been out riding together. Um, we were at Northwood Meadows. I yeah, think yeah. Ride out there a number of years ago with Jen Murphy and I don't know who else was with us. Um, and uh, yeah. we were talking about that. And yeah. you were mentioning um, uh, how incredibly impactful the snowmobile clubs are, obviously for fat biking. That. Yeah. That makes sense, um, but um, but they are they're instrumental in, in in maintaining the integrity of the trails all seasons. Yep, yeah, they're they're phenomenal, and and uh, use case uh, we can both agree that they do phenomenal work. Whether you're snowshoeing, cross country skiing, fat biking, uh, running in the wintertime, support your local snowmobile club. Uh, a little bit goes a long way, especially in the southern tier. They're they're hurting. Uh, for bucks. They've got groomers to maintain and they do phenomenal trail work. A tree's down, uh, boom, the next day it's gone. So enough said about that. And then uh, rolling forward, uh, we have Raid Lamoille, uh, which is usually mid-July. So I do Ju June, July, and August gravel rides. Um, the July-August ride is Raid Lamoille out of Craftsbury, uh, Vermont. And there I support the Craftsbury Sapling as the public library. Um, make a donation to them. And then new to the fold is for a rest stop over on, by Lake Elmore is the Elmore Community Trust, which is uh, buying or has bought the Elmore Community Store, uh, which is a general store, which was in danger of 
uh, turning into just apartments. And it's a, a very strong community resource. They're actually putting on a gravel grinder this weekend and uh, ride ride that one. So those three in uh, Vermont. Uh, and then scroll forward to August, we have the Kearsarge Classic. And uh, my two principal beneficiaries on the tithing side, I go with uh, the Friends of the Concord Lake Sunapee Rail Trail. Are you sensing a theme here? I like rail trails and the uh, the offshoots, uh, but also uh, Warner Connects, which is a food pantry. We do a food drive for them and also uh, make contributions based on their help at registration. The last event, which is kind of in limbo, uh, is the Kearsarge, uh, Mount Kearsarge Hill Climb, which I took over this year from Irv Gordon, who ran it for a good solid seven or eight years. Uh, smallish event, 75 to 100 or so riders. Um, didn't happen in 2020 for obvious reasons. And, and Irv didn't have the gumption to pull it off in 21. So uh, I was in, in conversation with him and we more or less agreed that, you know, I would take it over. But the actual turnover didn't happen until uh, July-ish. And I tried to get it on the calendar. I also changed the date. Uh, put it on the same weekend as the Escutney Hill Climb, my bad. Um, but I ended up having only 11 people sign up uh, with like a f you know, five weeks to go. So I decided, you know what, this isn't going to be a good experience for anybody. Let's keep the powder dry. Uh, and I have a co-director on that one in Aaron Holmes, uh, who uh, I believe is a client of, of, of yours, Chris. Uh, and you know her well. She's a phenomenal, phenomenal person. She's the race director for Orchard Cross uh, uh, Cyclocross Race, CX. Uh, she also is, uh, she's got a full-time job and she's a, uh, a mom, too, of a young daughter, Ivy. Uh, but she uh, just was named the coordinator for the Mount Washington Hill Climb uh, bike ride. And by all accounts, did a uh, terrific job there. So I... I brought her in eagerly as a co-director and um, I'm meant to sit with her shortly and have coffee uh, to figure out how we make 2023 for the Kearsarge Mountain Hill Climb a reality. But I placed it in early August to make it kind of a uh, perfect tune-up for Mount Washington. So I'd like to kind of keep the date uh, you know, adjacent to that somehow because it's always been after uh, Mount Washington, which is anticlimactic and so we'll see what happens, but stay tuned to be determined. We'd love to bring uh, the Mount Kearsarge Hill Climb back into the fold. And our uh, beneficiary there would be, drum roll, Kearsarge Trail Snails Snowmobile Club. Because <laughs> I got to tell you, I've got a my fave ride, except for the buck killer climb in the first half mile. I mean, it's hike a bike. One day I will clear it. It's going to be perfect conditions. Maybe I'll have Peg's e-bike. I don't know. But except for that, it's eight miles, eight and a half miles. It's 1,300 feet of climbing. It's legit. But the rest of it is just rolly, punchy, vistas, uh, dogs barking, you name it. It's got it all, Chris. <laughs> I, right out my back door. I want... I warned you at some point my dogs would start barking. Um, yeah. but quick follow-up to the uh, Kearsarge Hill Climb. So I, I actually are, I also did that race a number of years ago. That's when I met when I met Irv. Um, and as I as I recall, uh, that race was part of a 
Bumps series, B-U-M-P-S. Uh, this, uh, and I can't remember. Well, I think I think Bumps obviously referred to it uphill uh, biking, race. uphill mountains. Something. Uh, yeah. I, I thought I thought it was an acronym. Is is there still a a regional uh, hill climb series? And uh, if so, will the Kirasaraj hill climb be part of this series? Um, my understanding is that bumps, like all live events, took a, a bit of a hit. Um, it's, you know, its impact on, you know, your particular events, the upside uh, benefit, uh, you know, was, was not, you know, clear, although there's nothing, you know, there's no, there's limited, uh, the barrier to entry to being in the bump series was pretty low. Um, the big challenge in hill climbs I see is hill climbing is synonymous with road riding and road riding hard. So uh, counter to my friends on bikes, non-competitive, anti-spandex bro culture, uh, inclusivity, um, hill climbs kind of run counter to that. And they're, they're suffering uh, participation-wise from the same uh, malady other road events are suffering from, and that is gravel is king, road is challenged, and you talk about a subset of a subset, you're asking a lot. Because I've I've ridden Kearsarge several times from my house. Just getting to the toll gate is no joke. You know, the race actually starts closer to town near uh, near Warner. It's only about a half mile up the road from from downtown Warner. Um, and just getting to the toll house, which is the actual climb, is 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 a beast. So I think the I'm not answering your question. And that is, is the bump series still a thing? Yes, I believe it is. And will uh, Mount Kearsarge Hill Climb be a part of it? Uh, you know, I've got to see what the the particulars are. We never got that far. I was so late uh, to the game in announcing 2022. Uh, it was all I could do to get a web page and bike reg and insurance and, you know, a venue uh, nailed down. I never got to like the actual marketing of it. I did write to every participant, whoever participated in the hill climb through bike, through the bike reg event, or maybe through my, uh, my benchmark email account. And that drove it from zero to three riders. So it was like an unlimited, an, an inf infinity increase in participation. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm actually glad that you, that you brought Aaron's name up um, because this was, this was the, uh, the, the, the last piece that I, I wanted to chat with you about um, today. And that's, um, you know, as, of course, as you mentioned, Aaron is a is a client of mine, and so and so we you know, we would get together once a month and and get on a call and chat about lots of things, chat about family and chat about work, but and chat about how her training was going. But um, in the lead up to the Matt Washington Hill Climb, uh, her and I, you know, were having the conversation about uh, female participation yep. and uh, and um, the, the challenge of that. Obviously, she's a uh, she's a female race director. She's a she's a she's a female uh, uh, bike rider, uh, and so she obviously has a, she has a she has a vested interest in this. Um, and as part of our conversation, uh, I mean, we we also talked about the subset of a subset. You know, people that are willing to ride their bike, you know, seven miles up uphill to the summit of Mount Washington is a fairly narrow subset. 
And then within that fairly narrow subset, the uh, the challenge of convincing more women to participate. Yeah. Uh, because, you know, when she took, well, I mean, she has a general understanding of female participation in bike racing uh, here in, in New England anyway, um, as you mentioned, as a longtime uh, event director of, of Orchard Cross, um, uh, probably you know, one of the most iconic cyclocross races uh, in, in the region. So, you know, we, we were talking about uh, about those barriers to getting more female participation um, in, in, in hill climbing. Um, that concept of increasing female participation in bike rides and, and, and bike racing, um, that's a that's a project that's near and dear to your heart as well. Um, you've got something called the Gravel XX project. Um, talk a little bit about uh, about what that is, uh, Arlen. OK, and, and, and before before we segue to that, I just want to say, you know, hill climbing, you know, is is struggling. But it, but it ain't dead yet, and I think there's ways to to pump life into to the uh, to the discipline. So, and I'm going to work on that with Aaron. Uh, Gravel XX is really of a piece with that uh, friends on bikes uh, philosophy that I, I you know didn't have a name for it, but you know that's what I call it now. And that uh, when I started, I didn't didn't have a name for it, and it's really to get you know, as many people, you don't have to be a pro racer. You don't have to uh, be in the top echelon to participate in cycling events. And there's a benefit to that beyond, uh, well, I like to ride my bike, but I, I do it alone or I do it with my friend on the rail trail and that's all I'll do. It's more, you know, you're missing out because there's that camaraderie that comes when you get into a, a larger group. And I started out, uh, well, what's, what can I do? And I started out by giving away free entries to my events and also negotiating with other ride directors saying, hey, give me five uh, comp entries uh, for female ridership. Uh, and, and the deal was, you know, hey, hey, Jane, here's a free entry, but you have to entice one other female to ride with you. And I didn't police it. It was just honor system. But, you know, I figured two for one. And I'd, I'd get uh, more people involved. And I, I'm not sure how well that worked, but at least it caught attention. And I did notice an uptick. And the, the typical, it, you know, when I started, the typical female gravel participation was 10%, 12%, on a good day, 15%. And most of my rides are 25% plus, which, you know, that's headed in the right direction. Uh, and that's through welcoming uh, female riders. The other thing that I've done with two out of three of my uh, gravel events is added a woman's no drop where I have experienced uh, but friendly female cyclists who lead a group that might break up into pace groups along the way, but along the shorter routes. And I always offer a shorter and longer route at my, my gravel rides as well. Uh, all a challenge, you know, and there's plenty of riders that do the shorter route, smarter riders do the shorter route because they're back to the party sooner and uh, they get almost as much of a workout. But you doing that and then the emergence, uh, there's a new team, Salty Woman uh, Off-Road Racing, uh, and they're involved in gravel as well as uh, MTB and, and CX Cyclocross. And that's the other side of it. So if you look at uh, who you're trying to invite, it's like, 
you know, the, the more accomplished riders who want to feel like they're training for something, you get the salty women. Uh, mm-hmm. And there was uh, Seacoast, uh, Seacoast ri- women's riders, or I forget what it was, that, that presage salty women. But salty women isn't all about uh, competition. It's about support. So you get that at the, uh, at the near upper level. And then the uh, the addition of uh, the uh, women's snow drop rides, and I did something. I, I I had a few shekels come my way through my. Uh, I have a, a nominal uh, cycling brand sponsor in BMC, uh, uh, Swiss brand. A uh, good friend of mine is the Northeast rep for them, and he just comes. He brings the latest models to the rides. Um, he has you know, swag that we give out, but he managed to get me a few shekels as well. And I talked with the marketing director and I said, well, let's make this meaningful. Let's get gravel newbies, whether they're male or female, uh, exposed to gravel. So I conducted a gravel clinic, uh, which I was going to do for free, uh, and, but I hosted it up at Drummond's and Dick Drummond was like, no, no, no. If it's free, everyone will sign up and nobody will show up. So I said, okay, uh, Let's make it 40 bucks. And if you show up, you get a $25, $25 gift card to Drummond's to use on that day. That was an interesting noise. <laughs> that was Boone dropping his chew toy. Okay. <laughs> uh, anyway, um, we ended up getting like 60% female participation in that. And again, I had two routes. I had uh, intro to gravel and then I had you know, gravel plus. Um, which included a couple of short class six sections. And for your listeners, class six are unmaintained town roads. They can be anything from uh, grassy double, double track to gnarly ATV ripped up mud bogs. Uh, and you never know till you get there. Uh, but I had qualified instructors, um, you know, friends who I ride with, Aaron included, uh, and uh, ended up losing one of my uh, gravel newbie coaches. So I ended up riding with the gravel newbies that day, the shorter route had a blast and uh, converted. These are some people that had, yeah, they're on old mountain bikes. They're like, Oh, I got to get a gravel bike now. And it's like, Hey, you don't have to buy one today, but check out, you know, Dick stock and he'll tell you, you know, what a good intro gravel bike is. And you're on a 1990 uh, Nishiki uh, back roads or whatever with caliper brakes and flat pedals and you know triple ring and narrow handlebars it's like your life could be so much better uh, because you've you've ridden uh latter-day gravel bikes they're exquisite uh and, and just a quick pitch for anybody who's thinking of getting into gravel a uh, cyclocross bike is great for what it's designed for uh, but in the long term, you're really going to want a gravel bike, gravel specific bike. And a gravel specific bike is basically relaxed geometry like a road bike, maybe a slightly higher bottom bracket so you can go over stuff. Uh, but principally will uh, accept wider tires and has disc brakes and your life will change with a gravel bike purchase. Yeah. And it, it also, um, just to interject, because my my initial gravel bike was my um uh was my backup cyclocross bike my original cyclocross bike was an aluminum aluminum frame uh cross bike 
at some point I upgraded to a full carbon cross bike. Like who 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 in the world needs a full carbon cross bike? But N plus one. Yes. Um, so um, so I had this backup uh, cyclocross bike and I started riding it on gravel and I realized right away that it was a bear to ride up hills because cyclocross bikes just don't have the gearing range for long, hard climbs because you never experience or never encounter long, hard climbs in a cyclocross race. Um, so I actually put mountain bike gearing on that backup cyclocross bike and that turned into my gravel bike. And I think I think for a lot of of sort of the early gen um, uh, gravel riders, that's what gravel bikes were. They were, to your point, either mountain bikes or they were or they were backup uh, cyclocross bikes that were uh, modified, flexed, or or converted in order to ride longer distances um, and and gnarlier, burlier climbs. Um, you know, as as you're as you sort of uh, discussing some of the uh, some of the challenges to to female participation in gravel riding and and uh, how well received that gravel clinic was, I guess I guess a you know a, a question that I have is in terms of female participation, it's obviously multifactorial in terms of where where what the barriers are. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you had to sort of uh, kind of uh, maybe delineate the the top one or top one two or three. Uh, barriers. I mean, do you think do you think it's equipment related? Uh, in, in other words, um, uh, you know, folks feel women perhaps feel like in order for me to get into the sport, I've got to have another bike, a dedicated bike. Or is it uh, is it uh, is it education? Uh, is it um, uh, is it um, is it um, you know teaching people about what gravel riding is? I mean, I think perhaps I, you answered that question with your description of how well received that clinic was. But how would you handicap uh, what the what the greatest challenges are to participation for females uh, and female riders getting into gravel? So I, I think I think it's more of the education aspect of it, but it can't be like you must attend this to go. I think it really starts grassroots at the uh, either uh, kind of a club level or or the local bike shop LBS level to get people out there just to try it. Because, you know, we found this on the running side where, you know, at a certain point, our half marathons flatline. And it's like, you know what, let's add a 5K. And we found a lot of people who signed up for the half marathon dropped down to the 5K because they're injured or undertrained or whatever. But there was a lot of people that was like, well, I did the Future Farmers of America 5K. I'll do the Great Bay half marathon 5K. Um, and they do it. And so many people would come up to us years later, running a half marathon saying my first half marathon. And I want to let you know, I got my start running one of your five Ks. So I think it's experiential and education wise, if we can just get, um, and this, this transcends gender, uh, into diversity as well. If we can just get the folks out there somehow, some way, and it's a multifaceted approach, what works, whatever works, works. So whether it's uh, a local club and you find this, uh, you know, emerging, especially in urban, a lot more uh, population density, so you can get the participation. Uh, if it's a local cycling shop, you know, like Gus's Gals is a is an icon and, you know, they do a, a gravel a Thursday night gravel thing once fall rise with lights, you know, uh, Thursday night lights, um, clinics, uh, whether they're air sots like I pulled off where I limited it to 50 riders or um, 
you know, uh, the Rooted organization, you know, Ted and Laura King uh, do a woman's uh, gravel retreat where they, they get a, a couple hundred people. Uh, but I would argue that, you know, that skews toward the more experienced rider. So getting, you know, attacking it from both ends, like toning down the spandex end of it and introducing experientially from, uh, from the, the bottom end of it or the less experienced end of it, that's what going to get us where we want to be. Um, so it's, you know, whatever method works. So if it's a women's snow drop category in your, your organized ride or, uh, or running event, uh, if it's a clinic, you know, if it's discounted entry, whatever it takes to get more female participation and it, and it leavens the experience for everybody when the participate, the participation pool looks like the life pool. You know, it becomes less exclusive, more about, hey, just having a good time. And I used to joke, you know, the first uh, um, uh, Ray Rockingham, we had a guy show up with a TT bike. And it's like, oh, man. And, it, and I was like, wow, you're ambitious. And he's like, it's what I got. And it's like, have a good time and watch yourself on the rail trail. I hope you got a few tubes. And tell, got, tell, me, tell me he didn't have one of those teardrop uh, time trial helmets. Uh, or it was on backwards. No, no. <laughs> he, he had a regular helmet. He, he recognized his folly at the start and we had a chuckle about it. And, and at the finish, um, you know, we, we high five and he's like, never again. Like, <laughs> and I was like, you're never going to ride this again. He's like, oh, I'm coming back just not on this bike. He had, he had like 23s, you know, 23 uh, tires, you know, blown up to 120. And this is back before the rail trail was improved for the section that we uh, we were on. And it was just gnarly. I mean, people on, you know, with cross tires, you know, Vittorio, you know, GN pros, you know, and roughy toughies, they were flatting out there. I can only imagine, you know, with uh, you know, tri tires on 23s. Oh so, my goodness! Yeah. So with the, you know, with the, um, uh, with with the with the mission of uh, of uh, increasing the diversity uh, of gravel riding, uh, both gender related, um, uh, socioeconomically, yeah. um, um, ethnically. I think yeah. I think all of those right are, are important missions. Um, aside from that, um, you know, where where is gravel headed? Where, where 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 maybe you know where is gravel headed for you? And and where do you where do you more more broadly where where do you think the the sport of gravel riding is? Yeah. Well, uh, for me, it's simple. Uh, I'm going to do what I what I've always done. I don't have Lifetime Fitness or Garmin coming after me to to buy out my event. And I think I can cobble together 250 to 500 riders for all of my events. And I, I am perfectly happy with that. Um, what we've seen is the ascent of these uh, large gravel spectacles. And I guess that's to be expected. I mean, you have the San Francisco Marathon and the Boston Marathon, but you also have, you know, the, uh, what's, is it the New Hampshire Marathon that's out of Newport? Uh, or the Clarence DeMar or, or, or the local marathon where you get 500 participants or whatever. So you're going to have those. Um, but the, at the upper end of it, uh, it's, I don't know 
where it ends. Big money has infiltrated. I mean, there's gravel, you know, specific bikes. There's new uh, wheel sizing, uh, brakes, uh, you know, gear. It's it's the the maxi size tennis racket kind of uh, f- formula where you keep changing stuff so people are ever chasing, uh, you know, electronic shifting and twelve speed. Uh, cassettes, et cetera. But the fact of the matter is that 1991 Nishiki Backroads, you can go out there and have just as good a time as you can with a specialized, you know, Crux, Evo, whatever, you know, with made out of unobtainium. You don't need that. <laughs> just throw a leg over it and ride, my friend. Uh, so, so I got to keep doing what I'm doing. I'm a somewhat dismayed and I follow social feeds for the, the medium size rides in the region. And I, I, I'm not going to lie. It, it kind of rubs me the wrong way, uh, to, you, you can't be big and then try to be not big. Um, it's, it's easier for me. I'm not big and I'm not trying to be big. So it's easy. I'll just keep doing what I'm doing. And, you know, I I can also cut and run too. you know, Mount Kearsarge Hill climb. It's like 11 riders ain't going to cut it. I did the, uh, the spreadsheet on it and it's like, you know, I I need a certain critical mass and we're not going to get there. So sucks. Can't put it on this year, but it's not going to happen. I'm not at that point with the, with my gravel rides. And there's a bunch of gravel rides in my size, Rose mountain rumble. 100% benefits the Piscataqua Land Conservancy. I sign up every year knowing it's on the same weekend as my daughter's birthday, my son-in-law's birthday, and we're always up to my camp in Vermont. One of these years, I'm going to ride it again. Every year, I'm going to sign up. It's, you know, 75 bucks and it goes to a good cause. Um, Elmore Community Trust, limited at 80 riders. I'm doing that this weekend. D2R2. The original it's a thousand riders but you'd never know it he's you know he's actually turned it over to the franklin land trust and and they spread out the uh the starts of the uh the various distances so you'd never know it there's so many great uh gravel rides out there that aren't intimidating that are welcoming so i'm looking at the clock just like you are and chris i could go on for days so but in the interest of our dear listeners you may have some wrap-up questions. Something, something, uh, some old chestnut. Like three quick questions. You got anything like that in your toolkit? I, I do, I do, R man. Thank you for teeing that up for me. Um, so before I ask you those those three random questions, thank you very much for that uh, for that conversation about uh, about your background, how you got here. Um, uh, for for folks that want to find out more about uh, gravel cycling, how do they uh, how, how do they learn more about uh, about uh, about gravel cycling and about what our man's got going on? Yeah, well, cur- currently I have a website, and I will always have a website, grvl.net. You can always find out what's going on. I've got all my events on there. I try to keep those up to date, reminding myself I have to update the the events just passed and get them ready for twenty three. Um, I am on the socials, uh, GRVL, uh, both on Facebook and Instagram. I struggle mightily with coming up with relevant content, but it's a good way to disseminate information. If there's like hot news, Hey, we got, we had to change the, uh, the route on this or that, 
But uh, if you look up GRVL on both uh, Facebook and Instagram, I'm trying to pour it over to Instagram. I lost my personal Facebook account when I moved, uh, which meant I lost access to uh, the Gravel Facebook page. I There's an Arlen personal page. Uh, and there's also an Arlen, uh, uh, you can find me on, on Instagram personal page if you want to see pictures of my bikes or my grandkids. But grvl.net is a safe place to go. Look up events on Bike Reg. I use that platform, notwithstanding their acquisition by outside. Uh, they still are rocking it old school, and I appreciate that. So uh, that's where you can find me. And, you know, smoke signals <laughs> out, out over Kearsarge. Watch for those from the American Indian Museum. Uh, I'll do smoke signals. Yeah, and 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 I guess the last thing that I'll that that, that I'll add there is is perhaps the best way to uh, uh, to catch up with what's going on uh, with our man and and with gravel cycling uh, is to accept an invitation to one of his to one of his group rides. Um, you know, that's uh, friends on bikes, right? That's always always the best way to to stay in touch. Well, you, you are right. Um, I do have three final questions for you. I call this segment three random questions. So the first thing I'll ask you to do is to confirm that uh, you have not been given these three questions in advance. I have not get, been given these questions in advance, and you're asking me to think here. So uh, <laughs> let them rip. I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to keep this in your wheelhouse. Uh, first random question uh, for you is this. If you could only own one bike. What would it be? I own it right now. It's an open UP and it's a gravel bike. It's carbon fiber because everybody needs a CF and it takes uh, both uh, for the uh, tech technos out there. It takes both 700 uh, by up to 42s or take 650B up to two inches wide. It's the Swiss army bike in every sense of the word. So you will, you will, you will ride that up until the snow flies and then you will get back on it uh, as soon as the snow begins to recede? Yeah, and, and as I found on North Road, the snow receding and the ice receding from gravel are not synonymous. Uh, I had a long ride back. Uh, on some uh, scarified uh, gravel. But yes, you are correct. I will use that. It, it loves slush. And so do I. Yeah. Um, and a, a number of years ago when I was training for Rasputista, which you have to train for Rasputista through the wintertime, uh, I found that, uh, that by and large, the gravel roads here locally in Stratfordshire um, were still accessible to, to gravel bikes. Obviously, I couldn't get I couldn't get to the gravel through Class Six roads. So sometimes I'd have to cobble together routes. But but gravel is still is still open. You've got to uh, you, you know you've got to ride a little bit differently uh, in the winter time on gravel because it can get a little sketchy. But nevertheless, um, it is still doable. Then, random question number two is who has the finest gravel? Vermont or New Hampshire? Oh boy. I'm gonna throw I'm just gonna go ahead and throw the turd in the punch bowl, Chris. <laughs> Gotta go with the 802. And I'll tell you why. Uh, for the same reason that their paved roads suck. <laughs> most, most of the paved roads up there are state roads and they're woefully underfunded. Most of the gravel roads are maintained by the towns and Bucky the road agent takes extreme pride, even to the extent of knowing when my event is coming 
and doing me the favor of grading West Hill Road days before the event. Hey, thought you wanted it nice and purdy. That's awesome. It's like, yeah, I appreciate that. Could you do it like three weeks beforehand? So, <laughs> so it's packed down so people aren't chuffing up. And nothing against there's there's pristine gravel to be found. You want the best gravel in the Granite State that I've seen? Cartland Road in Lee. And you ride on that when you're on the uh, Raid Rockingham. It's like pavement. It's just always exquisitely packed down. It's got tree cover so it doesn't dry out and get crispy. But there, I said it, 802, I don't care. Bring on the haters. Is it, and it, it, it follow up question, is it true that Vermont gravel is different than New Hampshire gravel? I mean, it con constituently, uh, from a component standpoint, is it different materials or is that is that just a, is that just a legend? I'm no geologist, but I, I played one on TV once. And I'm going to guess that there's something magic uh, on the Vermont side. And you see it when you're driving up 89, uh, just in the, uh, the landscape, one side of the Connecticut River to the other. And, you know, is it glacial uh, deposits or whatever? But the way the, the hills are structured, one side of the Connecticut to the other, it's a bit of a different beast. And did, they, did the glaciers drop some uh, different alluvial uh, soil? I don't know, but I gotta, gotta believe that, you know, gravel is gravel. It's how it's maintained. Uh, make sure that, you know, runoff, uh, you know, is taken care of and you have tree cover and also how it's treated in, in the, um, in the springtime, you don't hear complaints about mud season in, uh, New Hampshire anywhere near as much as you do, uh, in Vermont, although they take pride in their suffering. I will say that. For sure. Um, all right. Last, last random question for you. Um, if you hosted a ride and could invite one special VIP, someone from the past or present, someone who is known to you or someone who you've never met or someone, uh, an individual fictional or real, who's the one VIP you are inviting to your, to your group ride? You got me stumped, my friend, because I'm I'm so enamored of anybody who will show up to my rides. <laughs> I will give them that. Um, I I would pick probably a riding chum, just because I treasure the moments that I get to share with them on the back roads and byways. And I'm going to give a shout out to Eric Nichols, who's a well-known uh, distance rider, and Ron Denour, but he will ride with anybody anywhere. Uh, and the conversations that we have, because we're both of a certain age, turn out to be delightful. Um, second most favorite, even though you didn't ask, is now that she has an e-bike, uh, my wife, because it's, it's such a treat to ride with her. And if, if you're contemplating an e-bike, uh, don't hate on them. Uh, we call it the great equalizer. Never mind the fact she's drumming her fingers on her uh, handlebars waiting for me to, to go up, you know, to climb a hill or whatever. But Eric, Eric Nichols for all time chum, great conversationalist. It's important to have somebody you're interested in riding with uh, along for the ride. And he's, he's somewhat of a, uh, a legend in these area parts. He's done Paris, Brest Paris a couple of times. Look it up. It's the real deal. It involves a lot of riding and not much sleep. So 
that, well, that's fantastic. Uh, Arlen, it, this has been a wonderful conversation. I, I really appreciate you carving out some time for me. Uh, and, uh, I, you know, I think if, if nothing else, this conversation uh, has reminded me that it's been too long since you and I have gotten together to ride. Yeah, we bumped up against two hours on the podcast, much to the chagrin of your listeners. So let's take this offline and uh, come on up to uh, Kearsarge area and I'll show you the goods or I'll, I'll swing over to the Shire as long as you agree to go my pace. That sounds good. Thanks again, Arlen. Bye all. Our man is one of a kind. <laughs> I mean, really, is there anyone on the planet that knows more about porta potties than than our man? You know, I still remember the ginormous loco running shoe model they had in their storefront for a while. Literally, this thing looked like it would have fit King Kong. I should have asked him what happened to that. And as I alluded to from my own personal experience, uh, Arlen puts on some really fun, really friendly, super cool gravel events. Once again, you've been listening to the Eat Half Walk Double podcast. If you're listening on Spotify and enjoyed what you heard, please consider circling back to the homepage and click the follow button in the upper left-hand corner. And of course, if you really enjoyed the show, please consider sharing it with your friends. I'll be posting some supporting media on my Twitter account at Coach Chris J. Dunn, so make sure to check that out. And lastly, remember, the secret to living well and longer is to eat half, walk double, laugh triple, and love without measure. Until next time.